The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Today, the next passage we come to is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to open and to study your word. We understand that These words come from your very mouth. As uh, scripture tells us, they are God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so help us by your Holy Spirit this morning to be thoroughly equipped for each of those things and uh, ultimately come to a deeper knowledge, a deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From the very beginning, God has uh, given us a choice about how to live. Uh, A choice between his ways and our ways. And the difference couldn't be more striking. His ways lead to joy, while ours lead to misery. His ways lead to fullness, while ours lead to emptiness. His ways ultimately lead to life, while ours lead to death. And yet, for some reason, we're still so often tempted to choose our ways. Our hearts just seem to be inclined in that direction. And Scripture certainly confirms that. Yet that's not the only reason why we so often choose our ways. As we're going to see this morning in Genesis 3, we have an adversary known as the devil or Satan, who, by the way, isn't just a symbol of evil, but is actually a very real and personal being. And he's made it his mission to turn us away from the ways of God and instead lead us down a path to destruction. So you might say that we're in the midst of a spiritual war. And if we 
fail to realize that we're in the midst of a spiritual war, we've basically already lost the war. Not only that, but Satan's also extremely clever and cunning. And Genesis 3.1 calls him crafty. And he's had plenty of time to hone his skills down through the centuries. And as they say, practice makes perfect, right? And Satan has certainly had plenty of practice. So he's an opponent we definitely don't want to underestimate. Yet one of the advantages we have against his methods is that he, didn't, he doesn't really change them very much. He doesn't have to since they work so well. However, that also gives us an opportunity to study his methods and see how he works and prepare ourselves accordingly. Kind of like a, a football team will often watch videos of their opponents playing football um, in order to get a read on them and see what kind of plays they run. We have an opportunity to do that with Satan's methods as they're recorded here in Genesis 3. Because again, he runs the same plays over and over and over. He whispers the same kinds of lies, makes us the same empty promises, and ultimately leads us down the same path to misery and disaster. Now, to set the context here, God has just created the man and woman, Adam and Eve, and put them in a perfect paradise called the Garden of Eden. And in this paradise, God showed his goodness to them by showering them with blessing on top of blessing. He provided everything they needed to be happy and whole and fulfilled. And if you remember back uh, to Genesis 2.16, God gave them only one command. He placed only one limitation on them. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The chapter then ended in Genesis 2.25 with the man and woman being naked and not ashamed, it says. A picture of their innocence in a world without sin. But all of that is about to change. Now look at the first part of Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now as we'll see, this isn't just any serpent, but a serpent that's being controlled by Satan. Many other verses in the Bible, such as Revelation 12.9, make that clear. And it quickly becomes apparent in Genesis 3 that he's up to no good. We read in the second part of verse 1, that he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what's the serpent doing there? What's he trying to suggest by his question? Well, he seems to be suggesting that God's unreasonable and excessive in his requirements. Notice how the serpent's question totally misrepresents what God said. In reality, God had said that any of the trees in the garden were fair game, except for that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent twists God's words and exaggerates God's requirements and asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
Of course, the serpent cleverly phrases that in the form of a question, but it's still pretty clear what he's trying to do. He's trying to plant seeds of doubt in Eve's heart about the goodness and love of God for her. Then, continuing on in uh, verses 2 and 3, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, true, uh, the, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve corrects the serpent by rightly stating that God's prohibition only applied to one of the trees, not to all of them. But even Eve seems to exaggerate God's command of it. She says that God prohibited not only eating the fruit of the tree, but even touching it, which wasn't actually a part of God's command as it was recorded in Genesis 2.16. So either there's a part of the command that wasn't recorded, or uh, I think more likely Eve is embellishing things a bit and making it seem like God is stricter than he actually is. Perhaps because the serpent's already beginning to have an influence on her. Then verses 4 and 5, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So there we have it. The serpent's agenda is now out in the open. He's progressed from a subtle attempt to get Eve to doubt God's goodness to now engaging in an all-out assault against God's goodness. At first, the serpent was simply asking a clever question. But now he's telling a bald-faced lie. And that lie is that God's deliberately holding out on Eve and keeping her from experiencing something wonderful. God knows, supposedly, that by eating the fruit, Eve can obtain a level of enlightenment that's beyond her loftiest dreams and become, it says, like God. And And God doesn't want that. Maybe because he's insecure and feels threatened. And therefore selfishly insists that she not eat fruit from that tree. That's the lie that Satan's trying to get Eve to buy into. And guess what? He is still peddling that same lie today. It may have some variations, but it's still the same basic lie. Actually, it's a double lie, a lie that has two components. The first component is related to the consequences of sin, and the second to the character of God. Uh, Regarding the first component, notice in the text how Satan explicitly tells Eve that her rebellion against God won't have any negative consequence. He says in verse 4, you will not surely die. In other words, you can sin and get away with it. In fact, sin will make you happy. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. So just like a fisherman will use a worm to hide his hook, Satan attempts to hide from us the consequences of sin and make it seem like sin is the most enjoyable thing in the world. Certainly far more enjoyable than anything God would allow us to experience. 
And that gets into the second component of Satan's lie, which is related to the character of God. Satan wants us to believe that God's deliberately holding out on us and and that he wants us to to keep us from experiencing incredible blessings because at the end of the day, God's actually not good or loving at all. Instead, he's a power-hungry dictator or perhaps a cosmic killjoy who has no concern about our happiness or our welfare. And yet, that's of course the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us about God, isn't it? In reality, God has given us certain commands, the Bible says, because he loves us and because he he wants to protect us from harm. You know, when Becky and I moved into our house that we're living in now, one of the first things we did since we have young children is that we put up a fence in the backyard because the, the backyard is pretty flat until it's not. And it drops off into a, a pretty deep ravine in back there. So uh, since we love our children, we didn't want them wandering off and falling down that steep hill into the ravine. And so we put up a fence to keep that from happening. The purpose of that fence, of course, wasn't to keep our children from something wonderful, but rather to protect them from something dangerous. It was an expression of our love for them. Similarly, the Bible pictures God as a loving father who's built a fence to protect us from harm. And each one of his commands is like a picket in that fence. And we're totally free to have fun and play games within the the enormous yard that God's provided for us as long as we stay safely within the boundaries of that fence. Yet Satan would have us believe much differently. He'd have us believe that the fence is more like a cage that's designed to keep us from what's enjoyable. God, therefore, plays the role not of a loving father, but of a cruel tyrant, according to Satan. So those are the two components of Satan's lie, both of which are clearly visible here in Genesis 3. Satan hides the consequences of sin and also impugns the character of God. And I'll just say that if you buy into that false narrative, you're basically done for in the sense that whatever resistance or hesitation you might have initially had about crossing the line into sin will soon diminish. And it's only a matter of time before you rush headlong into whatever sin Satan's trying to get you to commit. The moment you buy into Satan's lie, it's almost always game over. So take a moment and think. Where in your life right now has Satan successfully gotten you to believe that God's holding out on you and that you therefore need to take things into your own hands in disobedience to God? And as soon as you identify any area where that's happened, you've got to renounce the lie that you have been led to believe. Let me also take this opportunity to 
encourage you to learn from this exchange between Eve and the serpent. And be ever so careful about the voices you allow into your life. What voices are you listening to? Some of the voices we listen to the most, of course, are those of our friends. Which is why we need to be careful about the friendships that we cultivate. As a theologian named J.C. Ryle wrote over 100 years ago, he says, I advise you to be very careful in your choice of friends. You must remember, we are all creatures of imitation. Precept may teach us, but it is example that draws us. There is that in us all that we are always disposed to catch the ways of those with whom we live. And the more we like them, the stronger does the disposition grow. Without our being aware of it, their influence or they influence our tastes and opinions. We gradually give up what they dislike and take up what they like in order to become closer friends with them. And worst of all, we catch their ways in things that are wrong far quicker than in things that are right. Health, unfortunately, is not contagious, but disease is. So to a large degree, we are the product of the the friendships, especially the closest friendships that we cultivate. If you want to know what someone will be like tomorrow, well, just look at their closest friendships today. Yet our friends aren't the only voices that we hear on a daily basis, especially in this day and age. Uh, nowadays, we, we also have to be mindful of the voices we allow into our lives through media and various forms of entertainment. I'm sure you've heard the saying that you are what you eat. Well, that's very true when it comes to the entertainment we consume as well. And uh, I'll be direct with you. It seems like so much of what's being put out there um, is directly contrary to what the Bible reveals as God's will for our lives and to the picture that the Bible paints of the good life. And that really shouldn't surprise us because the Bible teaches us. Uh, we, we understand that Satan is actively at work in this world and very influential in the prevailing cultural mindset. 2 Corinthians 4.4 even calls Satan the God of this world, it says. God being spelled with a lowercase g. So I don't believe in drawing any legalistic boundaries or making any hard and fast rules about things that aren't clear in Scripture. Um, that is legalism. But I'll just say that watching some of the movies and shows that are being put out there, nowadays especially, just seems to me a lot like, I'll just say it, having your quiet time, your devotional time with Satan. <laughs> That'll make for some good community group conversation, I'm sure. Now, and it's not that every show is like this, of course. This doesn't apply to every show, but definitely to some shows. And I would say probably to an increasing number of shows uh, as our society continues its moral freefall. Brothers and sisters, having a 20-minute devotional time with God in the morning 
and then having a two-hour devotional time with Satan in the evening probably isn't going to shape you into a godly person. So learn from Eve's mistake in Genesis 3 and be very careful about what voices you allow into your life. Then moving on to verse 6, we see Eve's tragic decision unfolding in what feels like slow motion. Um, you know, kind of like when you maybe see someone falling and you can tell what's happening, but you can't really get there quickly enough to, to do anything about it. It's kind of what verse 6 feels like. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And with that, we see the main idea of this passage come into full view, which is that Satan persuades Eve to doubt God's goodness and consequently to rebel against God's authority. Satan persuades Eve to doubt God's goodness and consequently to rebel against God's authority. And the result is absolute disaster. As we'll see more next week, this tragic decision right here is the beginning of every kind of suffering and hardship and evil in this world. And think about how heinous this, this sin is here. Adam and Eve are rebelling against a God who's shown nothing but goodness and love to them. In fact, they're personally rejecting his rule over their lives. That's what all sin is, right? It's always personal. It's a personal rejection of the God who made us and who loves us and who's showered us with innumerable blessings. Truth be told, we're actually not even capable of understanding how, how heinous sin is precisely because we're sinful. Looking again at the writings of J.C. Ryle, he states, I do not think in the nature of things that mortal man can at all realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the sight of a holy and perfect God. We poor blind creatures, born in sin, surrounded by sinners, living in a constant atmosphere of weakness, infirmity, and imperfection, can form none but the most inadequate conceptions of the hideousness of evil. We have no line to fathom it and no measure by which to gauge it. The very animals whose smell is most offensive to us have no idea that they are offensive and are not offensive to one another. Likewise, fallen men and women, I believe, can have no idea what a vile thing sin is in the sight of of that God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. And so just get the picture there. Just like a foul-smelling farm animal isn't able to smell its own stench, we aren't able to conceive of how vile and heinous a, thing, a, a sin is in the eyes of a holy God. So it shouldn't be surprising that the Bible teaches us the penalty uh, our sins deserve is eternal judgment. And just as we'd expect a human judge to uphold justice by 
punishing a violent criminal, God upholds justice by punishing us. And so moving forward in our main passage, it's with good reason that Adam and Eve experience shame for their sin. As we read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So for the first time, Adam and Eve experienced shame. They'd never felt that before. It was a new thing for them. But now they feel a sense of shame for their sin, which manifests itself in a shame at their nakedness and causes them to try to cover their nakedness with loincloths of their own making. And spiritually speaking, people are actually still trying to make for themselves loincloths today. You see, one of the things we possess as people who are made in God's image is a conscience. And that conscience does what God designed it to do. It acts as a prosecuting attorney and convicts us of our sin. And so no matter how much we try to deny it, deep down, we know that we're sinful. And therefore, we experience shame and, like Adam and Eve, try to cover our shame with loincloths of our own making. So some people might try to do this by engaging in various religious rituals or acts of religious devotion. Others might do it by volunteering at various charities or donating money to various charitable causes. Still others might do it through political activism and their fight against various injustices that they believe are present in society. So there are many different ways in which people often will try to cover their moral nakedness, as it were, and placate their guilty conscience. And we might even say, atone for their sin. Yet the Bible is very clear that all of these efforts are utterly insufficient. As Isaiah 64, verse 6 says so well, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Think about that. Even our most righteous deeds, even the best things we do, are like a polluted garment and tainted by our sinful hearts. None of these loincloths that we try to fabricate are sufficient to cover our moral nakedness or alleviate our shame. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God, in his mercy, he does for us what we're utterly helpless to do for ourselves. And back in Genesis 3, and looking ahead to verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And this verse is actually part of the passage we'll look at next week, but taking a sneak peek at it today, we see that God himself, provides the covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness. In place of their pitiful loincloths, God provides for them garments that are sufficient to clothe them. And notice that these garments are made from what? From animal skins, which means that the animals had to be killed 
in order to furnish the garments. And so for the first time in the Bible, we find an indication that our sins can only be covered by the shedding of blood. Later on in the Old Testament, that theme would be further developed in the sacrificial system of the law of Moses, featuring the sacrifice of animals to, at least in some symbolic sense, atone for the sins of God's people. Yet we see in the New Testament that none of these animal sacrifices could truly atone for sin. As Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Instead, uh, these sacrifices were really more of a teaching tool that provided a temporary covering for sin. True atonement could only come through the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice of God's own Son. That's why Jesus is referred to in John 1.29 as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died on the cross in order to take upon himself the judgment that our sins deserve. And truth be told, we deserved to suffer God's judgment. We should have been the ones to face that. But Jesus stood in our place and suffered that judgment on our behalf. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in order to demonstrate conclusively that the Father had indeed accepted his sacrifice as payment for sin. As a result, he now offers full forgiveness, and cleansing to everyone who turns away from their sin and puts their trust in him alone for rescue. And by the way, that includes every person here this morning. Now, maybe you've been carrying within you a sense of shame for a particular sin you've done in the past. Or maybe you find yourself experiencing shame and aren't even sure why. No matter what you do, though, you just can't shake the feeling that something isn't right. You just feel dirty and unable to be clean no matter how much you try to wash yourself. Realize that that sense of shame that you feel is actually a gift of God because it functions as a constant reminder of your need for Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. Just as a, maybe a gaslight in the notification panel of your car indicates that you need to get gas. And just like physical pain alerts us to the fact that something's damaging our bodies, God likewise gave us the capacity to experience shame so that we'd see our need for Jesus. So if you feel shame this morning for whatever reason, I can't encourage you enough to run to Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Let him cleanse you of all of the things that you cannot cleanse yourself. And in the imagery of Genesis 3, receive the covering. 
that Jesus offers for you. And as we think about the, the way God so graciously provided a covering for Adam and Eve, it's striking to think of the sheer magnitude of his grace as we see it in this passage. In fact, let me briefly give you four realities of Adam and Eve's situation here in Genesis 3 that contribute to our understanding of God's grace and that remind us of how marvelous his grace really is. And I'll just list these for you. First, as we already talked about, the heinousness of Adam and Eve's sin against such a good and holy God. Second, the judgment their sin deserved. Third, their utter helplessness to do anything about their situation. And fourth, the fact that God was under no obligation whatsoever to help them in any way. When you put all four of those things together, it becomes apparent just how amazing and astounding God's grace really is. Now, just like the, the blackness of the night sky reveals the beauty of the stars, these four realities present in Genesis 3 form a backdrop that allows us to see the stunning beauty of God's grace. Not only that, but get this. For those of us who are Christians, seeing the beauty of God's grace in this way is the key, the key to overcoming the sinful tendencies that seek to reassert themselves in our lives. This is how we experience victory in our struggles with sin. You know, we've talked a lot about the spiritual war that we're in and the way Satan loves to entice us with sin, just as he did Eve, and make sin seem so desirable and so alluring. Not only that, but one result of Adam and Eve's rebellion is that the entire human race now has a sinful nature. That is a heart that's inclined towards sin. And even as Christians who have been given new hearts, the ghost of that old sinful nature still continues to exert its influence within us. And in our weaker moments, make us want to sin. Well, I'll tell you right now that the way to overcome those sinful desires isn't just by gritting our teeth and trying harder. That never works for very long. Instead, if you want to overcome sin, that happens, first of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, that it's by the Spirit that we put to death our sinful desires and tendencies. Also, in Galatians 5.22, Paul refers to godly character traits as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's a question. What specific ministry does the Spirit have in our lives that enables us to overcome sin? Like, what exactly does he do? Well, I believe that he opens our eyes to see the depth and the magnitude of God's 
grace, as we've been discussing. And enables us to see just how amazing and how astounding that grace really is. And then uses that to stir our affections for Jesus. And as our affections for Jesus are stirred, then we come to delight in him and become so full of joy in him that sin no longer seems appealing anymore. You know, when I'm full of a nice steak dinner, I'm not tempted to snack on stale potato chips, right? And when you're full of joy and delight in Christ, then you're not tempted to fall into sin. So all sin, when you think about it, can basically be traced back to a failure to delight in Christ. That's why we commit sins. Whenever we commit a sin, it's because in that moment, we're not delighting in Christ. We're sinning because we're empty. Another way to think of it would be to picture yourself as a a hot air balloon. How does a hot air balloon stay in the air? Well, it's through hot air, of course. Uh, The hot air rises and lifts the balloon up. And so if uh, you're a hot air balloon and you want to stay in the air and not go back down to the ground, then you need to make sure that you have a steady supply of hot air. As long as you've got that, a sufficient supply of hot air, you're good to go. And in the same way, as long as we're delighting in Christ, and we don't have to worry about falling down into sin. The only time we'll find ourselves sinking down into sin is if we're empty of delight in Christ. So if you want to overcome sin and, and avoid falling into sin as Eve did in the garden, make sure as a Christian that you keep that balloon full. Through prayer, through time in God's word, through fellowship with other Christians like we do in community groups. Those are the ways in which we're regularly led to delight in Christ. Friends, you and I will always choose whatever we desire the most. That's just the way we're wired. And so the way to overcome a particular sin is by acquiring greater affections for Jesus than you have for that sin. You can't just stop the sin. You've got to replace your affections for sin with affections for Jesus. So as I once heard a pastor say, find the things that stir your affections for Christ and saturate your life in them. Find the things that rob you of that affection and walk away from them. That's the Christian life as easy as I can explain it.